if you look at your own business and you're stuck in a rut, there's so many areas of excellence that you can work on. And a small company, when the company is at this million dollar or less stage, you only need one of those tactics to produce for you. Welcome to Noah Kagan Presents. What up, party people? It's your boy, Mama's Boy, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I have an insane conversation with Jonathan Siegel. He's an entrepreneur who's bought 29 companies. And here's the crazy part about it. Jonathan isn't some big tech guru. Yes, he can program, but he hates Slack. He doesn't really use a cell phone. And he's actually went back to school to learn more business stuff. But his results are insane. And so I'm really excited for you to learn about how he's done that in these companies. How the hell has he bought 29 of them? What's his philosophy on hiring and why he doesn't go after traditional A players? Third, what's his one tip, which is pricing, which he believes is the quickest way to double any business? Jonathan is also able to do this while he has eight kids, flies his own airplane, and now splits time between Japan and Las Vegas. We talk about that and a bunch more. Enjoy. Before we get started, if you like this interview, go check out Jonathan's book, The San Francisco Fallacy. It's all of his tales of companies he's bought, mistakes, and a lot of other fun activities of his. Enjoy the show. Eagle in the fucking house. You sound fantastic on Skype. Hey. You sound great yourself. I sound nasally normally. So if I sound nasally, it's actually picking up everything perfectly. That's just because we're Jewish, dude. I know, I know. We have extra resonance, you know, it's, it's, it's in the blood. I mean, there's trade-offs. It's like, make more money, have bigger noses. I'm like, fine, I'll take it. I know, I know. This is an easy one. Okay, so first off, how many companies have you bought and sold now? 29 companies I've bought. So there's three ways to make money on a business. When you do this sort of like private equity thing, you can buy a company and you can sort of rephrase it and you can try and get a better multiple. So if the company, I don't know, company's doing a million dollars a year and you buy it for $2 million a year and you figure out how to make it a SaaS company so it now becomes more valuable, you can sell it for a higher multiple. You might sell that same company for $3 million without doing anything else to it, just repositioning it. Other people will go in and do like a financial restructuring on the business. The company might have no debt. They might put a lot of debt on the business. And by doing that, they extract some value and are able to show it has better performance and sell the business. The third way to add value is to actually create value in the company itself. Do something good, grow the revenues, add a new product or to develop product or make it a better performing company overall. I always focus on that last thing. I don't know how to do this other engineering. I don't look for this multiple enhancement stuff. I just go in there and I try and make the business better. That is a huge value creator. I do computer science stuff. I do technology. I still code. I have a computer science degree, but I have no training whatsoever in business. I've never taken a business class. You probably heard me say this. I'm like, oh yeah, we'll measure the price elasticity of this product. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I just know like, if I'm going to be doing more and more managing businesses or managing money, then I should have the theoretical backing so that I can do it well. You know, you don't really meet people who've bought 29 businesses. Uh, can you walk, it, walk me through like an example of one and like, you know, the kind of formula that you're looking for? A Ideal business for me is a company that is SaaS software. So that software as a service. Let's start with Airbrake. Airbrake and Exceptional. These were two um, error tracking services and I bought both of them. They do the exact same thing. 
they were the first businesses I bought. All right. So how did that happen? Well, let's just start at the beginning and then the formula that you kind of created around buying. 2005. I'm trying to build my own companies. I used to do consulting. I said, I'm never doing consulting again. I'm going to do it for myself. This building company stuff is just going to be awesome. I thought I was building companies, but I was really just building products. But I built so many of these products. I built like 10 of them a year. And at that time, it almost like there was like a vacuum of not enough technology. So the minute I build something, even though it's just a product, sometimes like the market would just turn it into a company without me even trying. I had this company that was like a copy and paste shopping cart, some JavaScript, you pop in a page, it renders a shopping cart, you pop another JavaScript little button, you could like add things to a cart. So you could like power up a blog to be a shopping cart without ever writing any shopping code or dealing with e-commerce. And it really was not a company. There was no salespeople. There was no support department. It was just like four coders, all of us working together. And that stupid thing got put on the Ruby on Rails blog, got put on TechCrunch. And back then that sent you like, I think we got 30,000 users just from these early exposure on these, the tech press that just naturally pulled us into becoming a business. And then that business got acquired. It's like six months before we got an acquisition offer from when we first had an idea of what we we're going to do. And so 2005, I had an exit. And then 2006, there was a, a business called Right Scale, a, a cloud computing company. And that thing raised $75 million. It, it wasn't like I had one shot, one kill. I'm making a ton of these things that are basically products. They're not real full-fledged companies, but the market is so desiring innovation that they just got pulled into life. And then 2007 had a company called Right Signature, an e-signature company. And that thing just went instantly profitable and growing. The short background is it sounds like you've started a few things just as kind of projects. They took off, sold, made a bunch of money. So you did two of them. I did three. And then 2008, I had more money. You know, I had more liquidity, experience, network, everything. And I go to build my next company products and they all fail. And then 2009, everything fails. And 2010, everything fails. And I'm like, I, what am I going to do? How am I going to even work in technology if I can't do anything now that I've got all these resources? And I was really sort of like lamenting how everything I touched was failing. And obviously, I was wrong about being good about this entrepreneurial stuff. For having, I was just lucky. But anyway, I had a buddy who wanted to start Intercom. You probably know Intercom. But anyway, Owen had a side business called Exceptional. And this was an error tracking service. It only did a few thousand dollars a month. And he wanted to focus on this new project of his, and he wanted to get rid of this other business. And I tried to introduce him to people to buy it, like you know, GitHub and Atlassian. And they said, listen, it's $3,000 a month. No one wants it. If the team's not going with it, who's going to be able to support it? And I said, you know what? That $3,000 a month business is way ahead of anything I've touched in the last three years. Why don't I buy it? And I did buy it. And that is the beginning of how I do what I do now. Well, how much did you offer him? So he, for the $3,000 a month business... I offered $250,000 and I paid it in payments over 30 months. That makes no sense. He's making $36,000 a year and then you pay almost 10x revenue? Yeah. So he had 1,000 paying customers and these were all businesses. They're all technology companies. And the problem is he had a race to the bottom with his competitor, Airbrake. They had plans that were anywhere from $2 a month up to $9 a month. And so that average price was pretty low. And, you know, I got on the phone with his customers immediately. One of them was Groupon. The CTO had installed the first version of the product into the app. So we actually spoke to the CTO when we were talking to him. And he basically said, hey, listen, this company is not sustainable at whatever you pay. Let's say he was on the $9 plan. He said, it was just not sustainable. What do we need to do to get to $99 a month? That's something we could live with. And he goes, you know what? We use you in production. We're happy to pay $99 a month. I'm like, okay, great, great, great. What about $499 a month? What would we have to do to get there? And he goes, well, you know, we're Groupon. So we send you a lot of traffic. And what you do is you just drop it all. 
if you could just keep the traffic when we send it to you, we'll pay the $4.99. Oh, and add search. Okay. What about $999? And he goes, okay, look, if you get that, we want a dashboard. We want this iPad thing. And we go, um, okay, okay, well, we'll come back when we can do that. We had our next call, SoundCloud. Hey, SoundCloud, how'd you like exceptional? Oh, we love it. Okay, great. Um, we're thinking about a $4.99 new price point for the product. And here's the things that we're going to do for it. Is that something that you'd be willing to go to? Yes, but we had those calls every single day and we earmarked what the features we were going to have to deliver would be to get increased revenue for the product. Along the way, we ended up buying Airbrake, our competitor. They were doing about $15,000 a month. And we did the same thing. We paid them a big price and we paid it over time. That was a thought bought product. And between the two of them, we acquired this $18,000 a month of revenue. And a year later, we had 10 times the revenue. Wow. Okay. So you paid like a crazy multiple on the first one. How'd you buy the second one? And then how did you 10x the revenue? Second one, we figured out that we probably overpaid on the first one, um, although we did great by it. The number was basically whatever revenue they had, we paid them that revenue, like a fixed amount, whatever it was. You know, Every month, they'd still get the revenue for three years. So it's three times yearly oh, revenue wow. is what we did. Okay. And then we, our team focus was how do we get the revenue in from the business to pay for these purchases? And we were like laser focused on that. So how to get the company to like double the amount of money you're making each month? You got it. The only goal was just build something sustainable where we can pay off our debt and pay ourselves a salary and be content and happy to operate a business in the space. That was like really the only thing we were doing. And what we found was both of the companies we acquired were side projects. People who had them were incredible product builders, but they also were running other businesses. These were kind of like neglected businesses in a way. And the minute we started supporting them and talking to customers we rewrote the tech stack from one language to another to give better scalability. We did real work. But as we made that commitment, the market responded. Just the more we invested into it, the more we got out. Imagine if you stepped into someone's shoes and you looked at their business and they were doing no go-to-market activities. And that's actually typical. When we buy a business, the company is spending anywhere from zero to 1% of their revenues in their go-to-market. And when we own it, we try and get that to be a third of revenues for go-to-market. For clarity, it sounds like you spent 30% of all revenue on marketing. So you spent all this money in these two companies and you 10x the revenue in one year. Can you walk me through that? This is probably my passion is on pricing. It doesn't matter what it is. Like we talk about the price of any service. What I do is I actually figure out intelligent and respectful ways of changing the price and then seeing what the market actually does. And it's surprising, but usually when you increase the price, revenues actually just go up and then you increase the price again and they go up again. And depending on how poorly priced you were at the start, you either have plenty of room to go up or you go up and you start getting reduced returns. But almost always there's headroom in the price. And the unfortunate thing is that changing price is often the easiest win for a young company to get additional revenues. And those additional revenues drive their funnel so that they can get more customers in the door. So what we did is we did exactly that. We went out, tested pricing, saw that we could increase our price point. As we did that, as we raised it into the $100 plus, we found that we could now actually use a ad-based funnel to acquire customers. I don't think we did any rocket science. We just were really disciplined at a necessity to try and grow the business up to the point where it could pay for itself. And we did. We actually paid for itself in about the first six months. We got our hands around which channels were working. We just maxed the channels. Or in other words, if Google was returning a customer that would pay back itself, let's say 12 months, we would just keep spending more and more and more on Google until the numbers started to not look good anymore. By the time we did that, we just 
charted ourselves on this great growth path where we ended up 10 times in the business. All right. So the Jonathan Siegel formula, buy a company, overpay, obviously, miss look at their balance and income statements. <laughs> but I think what you did there, which I, I like, is you went to the customer and said, hey, we're thinking of charging a price point. What would you need for this price point? And then you actually took that to another customer and said, hey, here's what we're going to offer at this price point. Is this something that you're going to be paying for us? You then said, all right, well, now the pricing is going to be increased. We actually can spend more on different marketing activities. And then you went crazy when you found marketing activities that really worked. You got it. The price is the oxygen for the company. When you can increase that price, when you understand how the customer thinks about your product and when they want to pay more, that gives you the power to get the engine going. Yes, you can wait and get organic traffic. You sure you can build a content funnel, but that still costs money. But when you can do a performance marketing go-to-market, everyone should have a tech company with SaaS and recurring revenue. Well, so you make it sound a little too easy. I can imagine myself hearing you and be like, all right, so let me just go on you know, some site or go to Product Hunt or somewhere, uh, AngelList, and find a SaaS company, buy it, double the price, buy a bunch of ads, and then I'm going to be rich. It's got to be harder than that. You do need to be disciplined. And for instance, don't go to Product Hunt and buy a company. Go to Unbounce and set up landing pages for companies that are like the company you'd want to buy. And then go buy the ads and send the traffic to these landing pages and then see the performance of different business concepts before you go through the effort of actually buying the business. You know, you could do like a advanced interest list, a pre-sign up for the product type list. What you do is you see, hey, how much are the keywords that I have to target to get people to my potential product? Even when I do that, what's the volume? Because Google on AdWords is great to take out like what the search volumes are. So I might have the best product in the world for a conversion rate funnel, but there might only be one person who ever wants to go through that funnel based on the search terms. Have you ever messed with pricing on the 29 purchases and it backfired or it didn't work out? Yes, there are barriers to raising prices. There's times we've increased them. One case was this guy had a side project that became quite popular. He sold the business to us because he didn't have time to care for it. One of his things was sort of like, don't embarrass me, guys. <laughs> like, Don't make me look bad. And sure enough, we take this product, which was $5, sort of like one-time purchase. We figure out that people are pretty okay with it being recurring instead of just a one-time purchase for this $5 thing. And then we say, well, can we change the price? And it turns out on our funnel testing, we could change the price. We could change it all the way up to $9. It was a good thing to do. Did you just change the price on the page and see that people were buying it? Or how'd you test that? Yeah, we did over time. So sometimes the sophisticated stuff just gets you confused. So we just put one foot in front of the other. We took it from $5 to $7. We saw the impact on the conversion rates. And we said, oh, you know, our, our revenue growth actually went up. And then we went to $9 and said, oh, it went up some more. And it was actually 60% more from the base. And then we went to $11 and we said, oh, it, now it actually went down. And we went to $13 and said, oh, it went down some more. Let's go back to nine. That's actually how it worked. And then we said, you know what, if new customers are willing to do it, let's see if existing customers are. And so we started to do these waves of upgrades. And one of the customers, or a few, I guess, had tweeted to the original author and said, hey, man, what's going on? You're like, you're overcharging us here. Like, what's this for? Because people get anchored. They get anchored to their price. And they feel like if you just raise the price, you aren't doing anything to achieve it. Even if you started with the wrong price and it was way too low, they just don't feel good when you increase the price. He got a little upset with us. And that was backfiring. And he said, guys, you got to bring the price back. I mean, this is ridiculous. I can't have people upset with me. That was the whole point of having you come on board. And I said, well, listen, you know, the company wasn't viable at $5 a pop. You know, that's why we're raising it. We're putting all this effort in here to grow the business and we can't do it at this lower price point. But anyone who complains to you, we'll just give them free for a lifetime. They're VIP. They're your buddies. Not a problem. And we don't need to make any money on them. They're just VIP. And we said, before we bring the price back, just give us a minute. 
And what we did is we launched another plan and we made a $29 a month plan. And we actually did it so that there was almost no difference between the two plans. I mean, it was like some trivial, something was bigger, but it was not something anyone cared about. The minute we made that change, no one complained. And we got once every other week, someone would buy the $29 a month plan. What basically was happening was everybody was anchored to $5. So when they saw $9, the only thing they had to compare it to was five. Nine is more than five. They did not feel good about that. But when we introduced a $29 plan next to the $9 plan, so when you went to the purchase page or you went to upgrade and you saw your $5 is getting upgraded to nine, and that's what you're going to pay, but they saw that the $9 plan was actually, it had almost everything this $29 plan had. Like it really was a good value if he didn't know any better and he just looked at the pricing page. As you've been buying these companies and changing pricing, adding on more marketing, how do you find the people to then run the companies? I can handle five companies at a time in my portfolio. But the problem is opportunities come in all the time. I don't really get to decide when we get a new business. They come along all the time. And at the same time, I want to work with great people, people that want to step into someone else's business, run it, have a good operating company rather than start from nothing. Those people are really hard to find. You talked to me about a hiring matrix where you don't hire the best. You just imagine in your mind that four quadrants. On the bottom, you have an axis and we're going to label it. It's going to go from left to right. On the left, you have bad teammates. And on the right, you have great teammates. Okay. And then in your mind, since you have quadrant, you have to figure out like what's the up down part. So on the left hand side, from the bottom to the top, on the bottom, you have undeveloped teammates. And on the top, you have highly developed teammates. So bottom left is bad teammates that aren't developed. Since these are quadrants, you've got sort of like a cross in the middle. So you have four boxes. That lower left box represents the people that you can hire that are bad teammates and not developed. Well, you don't want those people. So you can just X that out. And so now you have another box in the upper right, and that would be your great teammates that are highly developed. And the problem is that they're unobtainium. They're exactly the people you want. You want people that love to come to work, that you want to have them around. They have all the skills, all the capabilities, self-directed. They're super well-developed people that are great to have around. Unfortunately, I can't get them. Like I said, whoever's place they're at, they're great teammates. They're not going anywhere. The people that work with them know it, and they're really skilled. So why would you ever want them to go? They're really, really hard to capture. And if you get them, you keep them. You hold them as tight as you can. So I got to X that box out too. I don't want the guys in the lower left. I can't get the guys in the upper right. And that only leaves two quadrants left. It leaves people who are really highly skilled, but bad teammates. Those guys I think of as mercenaries. And the worst hires I've ever done in my life is where I've confused someone for being, I thought that they might be a good teammate and they were actually a bad teammate, but they had these great skills. I just had a really hard time accepting that I shouldn't have them on my team because a bad teammate, they're kind of poisonous. So those guys, they make great contractors. They're surgeons. You bring them in when you need this, like an incision done and take that thing out. But my God, it's going to be painful. It's going to cost you a lot. And you're never going to want to see them again. That's that upper left. And now all I'm left with, I'm just left with this one remaining quadrant. And this remaining quadrant is undeveloped teammates that are really great teammates. And those are the people I hire. I hire them every single time because someone who is a great teammate, they uplift all of us. They take a bullet. They're just wonderful to have around. I can create value by helping them develop. I can help them do personal and professional growth. 
And I think that's really our goal as, as sort of people that have the opportunity to create companies is it's not just a vehicle for wealth or for satisfying customers. It's for growing and developing people in your team. You know, when I look back, you point out like I've had these acquisitions or I've built things. I look around and I see the amazing teammates I have around me and my amazing ex-teammates have gone on to just do like truly amazing things. That's what makes my day. That's what I'm talking about. You told me that about two years ago and I still think about it, frankly, because I think I've hired everyone from those quadrants. At Sumo, actually, we just hired a guy who is an Australian guy that runs a snow cone company that was living in China doing breakdancing. And I just really loved his attitude and his writing style. And so I flew him to Austin two weeks ago. He's living in the office and now he's helping run our content. I think that's amazing. And obviously, you're sharing attributes that you wouldn't traditionally associate with someone who's going to rock it, wouldn't get into Google, let's say, with that resume. I hired my right hand woman, Terry Wilson. She is amazing. I hired her as she came back from the Peace Corps. This is in 2010. She ended up being director of operations, not just in my company, but after we were acquired, she just continued to grow in the acquirer's company. And then now we're working together again. And you know, this is someone who I think would have failed every traditional hiring opportunity. I'm lucky that I get to work with her. The entrepreneur story is actually, it's really difficult. 80% of venture-funded companies fail. If you're a young entrepreneur and you've gone through that process, it doesn't feel good when you've raised money and it doesn't work out. It's hard to carry that. The idea of going right back into like the gladiator pit and trying again is attractive for some people, but for other people, they just don't want to do it. So the people that I find tend to be ex-startup entrepreneurs, people who now just want, hey, give me a steady deal, give me more reasonable expectations, but make them really likely to happen. Let's have a good environment and work together. For me, it's just getting the timing right. So it sounds like for the people to run the companies, you find someone that's a run a company hasn't worked. But I think one of the important underlying parts of that is that you've been meeting people and connecting with people for a long, 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 long time. Because I think a lot of people, what they do is they say, I want to get married. They go on Tinder, swipe right. And then they're like, oh, shit, it's not happening right away. It's like, yeah, it takes time. It does take time. And you have to be actively doing it. So I think those are the parts that I really take away from you. We're like reminding myself, Noah, if you want to hire great people to work at Sumo, that you have to always be on the lookout and connecting with people. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's some sort of like also a self-fulfillment prophecy, certainly on the technology side. That's just where I lived. And there's a good sort of network for me to draw on. But even then, the real world is weird. Sometimes, you know, we get an opportunity and there's nothing. I get nothing. What do you mean? Usually we do two big purchases a year is about all we can handle. And what's a big purchase mean? Like, give me the range. A million dollars a year business. But the business itself is doing a million dollars a year of recurring revenue. That's a real important number for us. We think that companies that do a million dollars a year can run cash flow positive, And underneath that, you can't. So if we buy something under a million nowadays, we really have to be super scrappy. And there's actually a lot of risk for us even to try and get above that million dollars. Because if it doesn't grow, then we're stuck with it and it can almost eat from us and we have to keep feeding it. So you've bought so many companies. I want to know some of the things that you've seen that like is great from companies and bad at companies because you've looked at so many of them and you acquired them. I guess I was just trying to learn more what you've learned about companies from buying so many of them that all of us can apply to our own businesses. I would make it a SaaS business or go find a SaaS business. That's one. Recurring revenue is just magic. It's an annuity. It means if you don't do anything, you basically get all the money you got this month, next month. It's pretty cool. And if you don't do anything that month, you kind of get all the money that you had this month, the next month after. So recurring revenue. After that, gross margins. So some companies, especially technology companies, if I earn $1,000 from a customer, 
I might have real costs. I might have servers and all this SMSs that I'm sending. I might have real costs underneath it, and they could be substantial. That's not good. What you want is for every $1,000 you charge customers, you want only $200. So you only want 20% to have to go to the COGS, the cost of goods sold. And that gives you 80%. Now, that 80% goes pretty quickly. But if you had the opposite case, if you earned $1,000 from a customer and you had $800 that had to go to your servers, you only have $200 left. That's a terrible place to be. So you want a software as a service, 80% gross margins. And when I look at companies, I don't want anything retreating, which means I don't want the revenues going down. I want them either flat, which is often unattractive to people, or growing very, very slowly. But if they start going down, there's so many reasons revenues go down. None of them are good. So I avoid the declining revenues. If you're in a business and you see your revenues going down, you should be worried. You need to understand exactly what's going on and fix that urgently. So those are like the basics. You need that fee to get in the door. Once you do that, if you are looking to take on a company, if the operator who's running the company is doing everything right, they're sort of testing their AdWords, they're doing landing page testing, they're sending out newsletters, they're blogging regularly, they're forming partnerships, they're going to events, they have five-minute callbacks whenever they get a new lead on the website, they try six times to reach every new inbound lead. If the team is already doing that, I would never buy that company because I just described 99% of best practices. And the reality is most companies don't do those 99% of the best practices. Usually they'll try like one thing and they'll do it bad. They'll do Google AdWords, but they'll like not optimize it right. So they're way overpaying or they'll run a landing page, but they won't A-B test it. So their conversion rate's really bad or they'll get sales opportunities coming in the door, but they won't call them back within five minutes. It's known that if you don't call back within five minutes, you have a precipitous drop off of being able to contact that customer. I look for companies that have all those problems. And if you're listening and it's your own business, you can just create so much upside by getting those great practices. And if I see a company that isn't doing those things, and that's most companies, then I know that they're a possible target for me to work with. That's really a lot of what I bring is just the discipline to run the business right. What are the best practices you're referring to? So if you're going to do any performance marketing, that you really understand the channels. If you're doing Google AdWords, that you understand how to optimize those campaigns. If you're doing Facebook, that you know what lookalike campaigns are, that you really understand your channels. If you get sales leads, if you're taking sales leads, and you should be, that you get back to them immediately. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, some of the things that since I last talked with you at Sumo was hiring a sales team, which now I think we have around 12 people calling customers just to be like, yo, what were you looking for? What did you need help with? And let's see if we can do that for you and trying to do that as quickly as possible. That's absolutely right. And so I would never want to buy a company from you, Noah. (laughs) (laughs) You already are doing much of what I would do. And this is sort of a nice thing. If you look at your own business and you're stuck in a rut, there's so many areas of excellence that you can work on. And a small company, when the company is at this million dollar or less stage, you only need one of those channels to work. You only need one of those tactics to produce for you. You don't have to be hitting every cylinder, you know, trying to move everything forward. If you're not trying to become a billion-dollar company, if you just want to become a million-dollar company, anything will work. I mean, if you have a great content strategy, you can grow the business predictably with just that content strategy. If you have a partner strategy, if you have an ecosystem that you can play in, you can build and grow that business just in that partner ecosystem. You don't have to do everything. If you're stuck, you can try a little bit. Try and take leads on the website. Like You only need at that early stage one of these tactics to start converting, and it can get you to that next level. 
now that you've learned all this stuff, like what are the things that you would do to start from scratch for a lot of the people that are thinking, oh, I want to start my own? Oh man, I wish I could say start your own company. I just can't say it anymore. I have wasted so much of my time building stuff that is just dead code, just not around. My success rate when I buy something, it's so high. I just can't be motivated. I think the real problem is like, it's a creative passion. Like when you say it, you say someone wants to start their company. And if someone says, I want to have a successful company, I don't think you'd ever start your own company. So if you say, I want to start my own company, you're sort of saying the idea that I am the founder and I do this, it's more important than me ever being successful. And if you do that, then you're not going to want the discipline that I would suggest you bring. It's a totally different energy. It's a different motivation on a very, very fundamental level. As things have changed, I mean, 40, I'm 35. You know, we're kind of like, as my father would say, the altakakes, altakakes. It's like a Yiddish thing for like old fart. You know, I was wondering, like, how do you stay relevant? Like, you know, they're making money, but how do you know what kind of technology or things are coming out in the future? And Yeah, so I actually did worry about that. And that was sort of like my self-doubt back in 2008, 2009, when nothing I was doing was working. I think I'm already irrelevant. So I am not going to have that next billion dollar idea. I will not be creating the next Snapchat. I don't even get it. But creating a million dollar business, like a million dollars of revenue a year, which I think is a huge place to be for anybody, that I think I can do. Even in in like the dark, murky corners, the things you're not going to see on the front of the tech press, sort of like boring companies, that's probably where I'm spending more of my time. You don't need as much innovation. Things don't change as much. And there, I think I'm not going to become irrelevant. I can still find stuff to do on that really small scale. That is interesting. So for you, it's saying, hey, let me just stick with what I like so far. And that's what's working. Man, I had an e-commerce widget company at the height of like blogs when blogs were going to be big. And then I had a cloud company right like at the beginning when cloud computing was big. And then an e-signature company right when like SaaS was just becoming a thing. I won't have those now. I should have let that part of me go. I'm not going to be at the crosshairs of hyper relevancy and certainly not three to five years ahead of its time stuff. I'm going to have something that's like meat and potatoes today. It's just going to be a little bit more boring, but I can run it. I can stay engaged. I can see success for me and my teammates. Let's talk about the book. Why'd you write a book? I wrote a book originally to help sell my consultancy. I didn't realize of writing a book is painful. It was really hard for me. In the end, I sold my consultancy before I finished the book. And then seven years later, I realized I am a broken record when I meet entrepreneurs. I'm telling them about my failures because they don't hear enough people talk about their failures. And they feel like it's only them that's ever had a company that failed. And I felt I was doing a disservice by not finishing that book and getting it out to life. If you are an entrepreneur, you will have a bumpy road ahead. And I share what it actually feels like to be there and how you actually get back up and you do great things afterwards. And I think you'll find it cathartic to have a read. Maybe by identifying some of the rakes in the grass ahead of you, you won't step on them as at least not as hard in the face as I did as I was going on my entrepreneuring journey. There's so many business books out there. Why would I want to get another one on my table? Well, first off, I'm not going to waste your time for 400 pages. It's like a third of that size. I get right to the point you'll hear some like real like heartfelt mistakes that I made along the way. It's not academic. I'm not going to bore you with a bunch of theory or things that I learned in business school. It's really just intimate stories of what it feels like on the front lines of trying to be successful in the technology world. 
it's just not fun for most of what I went through. And I think if you're in a position where you're trying to figure out how do I think about payroll when I can't make it, or maybe it's time to shut down my company, or God, am I going to be that person who has to shut down their company? You can read my book and realize you're not alone. That's just how it is. And knowing that other people have gone through it, come out the other side and found success, you know, it's something people need to hear. What's your favorite story from the book? The one that people email you about? I had a porn business when I was a teenager. Should we just leave it at that so they have to go get San Francisco Fallacy by Jonathan Siegel to learn what happens with the porn? <laughs> Damn, what a good cliffhanger. Now I want to go reread it. I, so just to give a personal recommendation, I have read the book. I really liked it. Literally, I think it's around 10 stories. A lot of what we talked about is all the greatness that you've had, but these are 10 stories of failure, some success, and it's just really fun, quick read that you can do. I think I did it in actually one night and I emailed you. I was like, yo, that was actually surprisingly good. And I thought I knew you. I've, you know, We've hung out a, a good amount of times. Yep, there's some uh, skeletons in the closet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed the show as much as I did. If you like Jonathan, go check out his book, The San Francisco Fallacy. Next up, just go tell one friend you like him. Be like, yo, I miss you. I love you. I'm thinking about you. Number three, I love making these shows better. I love seeing your tweets. So tweet me, at Noah Kagan, if you made it this far. Yo, this show sucked or it was great or here's how you can make it better. Holler at your boy. Number three, four, have a spectacular day. What's your favorite flavor of ice cream? <laughs> <laughs>